My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. to another day as we continue through the Word of God and again so glad that you are joining me as we continue our journey through the book of Matthew and today we're continuing the journey through the chapter of uh, Matthew chapter 5 which is the Sermon on the Mount uh, and we have been breaking it up into different chunks because there's so much in it and it's the most amazing sermon that we could ever listen to. Contains for us uh, so much of what Jesus wanted us to understand and know as Christ followers. It's a sermon that is aimed towards us being perfected as disciples and, and moving on from followers. What is that? A disciple is a disciplined follower. It's a follower who follows the discipline of doing what Jesus said that we need to do. And so we get to uh, verse 33 in Matthew chapter 5. And this is a long section where Jesus is dealing with the differences in the law, what people had been taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. And the reason that he's doing this is that he's already explained that he's fulfilled the law, but he, then he's also saying the way that you've heard the law taught was not the original intent of God the Father. And so I want you to know what the original intent was so then you can know what the new standard is that I want you to live by. And so we get to verse 33. And Jesus says, And again, you have heard it, that it was said to those of old, You should not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. The scribes and the Pharisees had twisted the law from Exodus chapter 20 verse 7 that said you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain to permit pretty much taking virtually every other name in a false oath. And Jesus says don't swear at all. Okay, Now this is not talking about swearing as in curse words. This is like swearing I swear on the Bible that this is the truth. Uh, you know when somebody says to somebody I swear I'm telling you the truth. On my mother's grave, I'm telling you the truth. That's making an oath. That's, that's swearing. That's what the point we're talking about here. Jesus reminds us that God is part of every oath anyway. So if you swear by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or even your own head, you're already swearing by God, and your oath then has to be honoured. So then he says, let your yes be yes. See, if you think the point Jesus is trying to make is that if you have to swear or make an oath, then that actually betrays the weakness of what your word was. It demonstrates that there's not enough weight in your own character to confirm your own words. It's better to just say, when I say yes, I mean yes. When I say no, I mean no. I have a great saying that I, I you know, I, I've been involved in leadership for many years. And one of the things I say to the people and the teams that I lead are this, say what you mean, mean what you say. So if you ever say something in a meeting 
And then you have a follow-up later on and you say, well, what I mean is this. Well, why didn't you just say that in the first place? Because your yes is not yes, your no is not no. You, you came up with some other uh, diatribe that nobody understands and now you've got to say, well, what I mean is, well, just say what you mean first. This is what Jesus' point is. Now, some have taken this word of Jesus as more than an emphasis on truth-telling and honesty uh, as an absolute prohibition against all oaths, which is actually misguided because oaths are permitted under certain circumstances as long as they're not abused and as long as they're, they're, they're not used as a cover for deception. Uh, Hebrews 6 and Luke chapter 1, God himself swears oaths. Uh, Jesus spoke under oath in the court in Matthew chapter 26. Paul made oaths in Romans 1, 2 Corinthians 1, Galatians 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. William Barclay, the truly good man will never need to take an oath. The truth of his sayings and the reality of his promises need no such guarantee. But the fact that oaths are still sometimes necessary is the proof that men are not good men and that this is not a good world. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. <laughs> this is, we've all heard this one, right? But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from whom, from him who wants to borrow, from you, do not turn away. The Mosaic law did teach an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in Exodus chapter 21. But over time, religious teachers had extrapolated this command out of its original meaning, uh, which was this. It was meant to be a principle limiting retribution for the civil government. And then they put it into a whole different meaning as an obligation in personal relationships. It was never meant to have anything to do with personal relationships. And Jesus said, listen, whoever, when it comes to personal things, whoever slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one. Jesus is presenting the fullness of the eye for an eye law and how its idea of limiting revenge extends into the principle of accepting certain evils against yourself. So when somebody insults us, slaps us on the right cheek, what do we want to do? We want to give them back what they gave to us, plus a little bit more, a little bit of flavour. Jesus said we should patiently bear insults and offences and not resist an evil person who insults us this way. Instead, what we're meant to do is we trust God to defend us. If, if a friend points out that the ancient Jewish writings say that striking someone with the back of the hand, a severe insult, was punishable by a very heavy fine, according to the Mishnah Bikar 8.6. Now, it's wrong to think that Jesus means that evil should never be resisted. Jesus demonstrated with his life that evil should be and must be resisted uh, you know, when he turned the tables in the temple. When we think how Jesus himself um, was insulted 
so much. He was spoken against. He was called a glutton, a drunk, an illegitimate child, a blasphemer, a madman, or so many different things. Then we can see how he lived this principle himself. And it's wrong to think that Jesus means a physical attack can't be resisted or defended against. You know, when Jesus speaks of a slap on your right cheek, uh, it was culturally understood to be a very deep insult, not a physical attack. Jesus doesn't mean that if somebody hits you across the right side of your head with a baseball bat, then you turn around and say, oh, I hit the other side. Um, no. Um, David Guzik says this, if a right-handed person strikes someone's right cheek, presumably it is a slap by the back of the hand, probably considered more insulting than a slap by the open palm. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20 probably has in mind this kind of insult slap. Uh, so what, what uh, Guzik and Carson are referring to there is a slap with the back of the hand was, I'm insulting you because you're lower than me. A slap with an open hand was, I'm insulting you, but you are equal to me. Well, what Jesus was saying is, hey, let him slap you again and say that they're your equal. That's the intent of what Jesus was talking about. It's wrong to think that Jesus means that there's no place for punishment or retribution in society. Jesus here is speaking about personal relationships. Why? Because that's what the scribes and the Pharisees had distorted the law in the Old Testament. So he's like, oh, you want to talk about personal relationships? Let's talk about it. Um, So Jesus here is speaking about personal relationships, not to the proper functions of government in restraining evil, which he talks about in Romans chapter 13. Uh, Well, the Bible talks about in Romans 13. I have to turn my cheek when I'm personally insulted. But the government does have a responsibility to restrain evil people from physically assaulting somebody else. So Jesus then goes on and he says, look, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Why? Under the law of Moses, the the outer cloak, okay, uh, could not be taken from someone. That was Exodus chapter 22, Deuteronomy chapter 24, part of the law. Spurgeon says this, Yet even in a country where justice can be had, we are not to resort to law for every personal wrong. We should rather endure to be put upon than be forever crying out, I will sue you and bring an action. And Jesus was talking about this from something that might happen as simply as somebody taking your cloak. And then he goes on and he says, listen, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. What's the context? There's a really interesting context about this. Because positively, we are told to take command of evil impositions by making a very deliberate choice to give more than we're required. Now, why? Because at this time that Jesus was saying this, Judea was under Roman military occupation. And under military law, a Roman soldier could command a Jew to carry his soldier's backpack for one mile, but only one mile. And Jesus here is saying, go beyond the one mile. Do more. If one mile is required by the law, then give another mile out of free choice, not out of obligation. See, that's how we transform an attempt to manipulate us and put us down and we turn it into an act of free love that lifts us up and puts us into a a, a moral high place that we originally had no place of being in. Why? Just through our choice to do more. 
Jesus says, give to him who asks of you. The only limit to this kind of sacrifice is the limit that love itself will impose upon it that comes out of us. Uh, It isn't loving to give in to someone's manipulation without our transforming it into an act that's a free act of love. It isn't always loving to give or to not resist. (coughs) Pardon me. Uh, Paul repeated this idea of Jesus uh, in Romans 12. He says, do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we have to understand this. There's a lot to unpack in that. There's a lot to just really reflect and meditate upon uh, just in that just one verse there. Okay, let's move on. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? The Mosaic law commanded, you shall love your neighbor, Leviticus chapter 19. But some teachers in the days of Jesus had added a bit of an opposite and almost an evil misapplication, which was an equal obligation to therefore hate your enemy. Don't just love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. Instead, Jesus reminds us that in the sense that God means it, all people are our neighbours, even our enemies. So to truly fulfil this law, we have to love, bless, do good and pray for our enemies, not just our friends. And Jesus understood we are going to have enemies. You will have them. But we are to respond to them in love, trusting that God will protect our cause and destroy our enemies in the best way possible. How? By transforming them into our friends. That's the thing that we don't ever think of. How can I make this person who's my enemy my friend? How do you do that? We should think like that. Not ask God to destroy your enemies. Ask God how he can help you transform an enemy into a friend. Not always possible, but we should at least ask. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. So in doing this, that we're imitating God, uh, who shows love towards his enemies by sending rain on the unjust and on the, and, and the just. So God loves his enemies, so we're meant to also. Uh, Spurgeon, you see our Lord Jesus Christ's philosophy of nature. He believed in the immediate presence and working of God. As the great son of God, he had a very sensitive perception of the presence of his father in all the scenes around him, and hence he calls the sun in the sky God's son, he maketh the sun to rise. As though he did not regard human character at all, God bids his son, S-U-N, shine on good and bad. And he does it deliberately. He is doing nothing by mistake and nothing without a purpose. What does God say to us when he acts thus? I believe, Spurgeon says, that he says this. This is the day of free grace. This is the time of mercy. The hour for judgment is not yet when he will separate between the good and the bad, when he will mount the judgment seat and award different portions to the righteous and to the wicked. This is an example 
that we are also to love our enemies and bless them if we can. And in doing so, we show ourselves to be sons, daughters of our Father in heaven. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? This is, this is like Jesus, like stating the obvious kind of comment. What, what are you doing more than a sinner if you only love people who love you? That's what sinners do. We should regard that as a matter of virtue, uh, that we just merely return the love that's been given to us. There's nothing Christian about that. And Jesus here is teaching the character of his citizens of his kingdom. He's saying, this is what you should be like. Remember, he started off with the Beatitudes. These are the attitudes that you should have. Now he's saying, this is what your character should be. We should expect that character to be different from the character that we see in the world. And there are many good reasons why more should be expected from Christians than non-Christians. Why? Because they claim to have something that others don't have. They claim to be renewed. They claim to be redeemed. They claim to be repentant to Jesus Christ. Okay? Well, if you do all those things, then you better be different. And they do have something that other people don't have. They are renewed. They are repentant. They are redeemed by Jesus Christ. And they have a power in them that other people don't have. They can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. They have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. They have a better future than non-Christians do. So they should act differently. They should have a different action in their heart. Which then leads us to the last verse of this first uh, chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 48 of chapter 5. Therefore, so therefore, all I've said in this, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. If we could live the way Jesus told us in this chapter, we would be truly perfect. We'd never hate, slander, speak evil another person. We'd never lust in our heart or our mind. We'd never covet anything. We'd never make a false oath. We'd never be uh, anything other than completely truthful. Uh, we would always let God defend our personal rights. We would never take it upon ourselves to defend those rights. We would always love our neighbours and we would even love our enemies. And if we could just keep doing what Jesus told us to do here, then he would truly have a righteousness. We would have a truly have a righteousness that's greater than what the scribes and the Pharisees had. The very thing that we must have to enter into God's kingdom is righteousness. And this is how you get it. Righteousness, being made right with God. How are you made right with God? Live like this through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. The thing is, there's only one person that's ever done it, Jesus Christ. So what about the rest of us? Does that mean we're left out of the kingdom of God? I'm glad you asked. Fantastic question. D.A. Carson has a great answer. Jesus is saying that the true direction in which the law has always pointed is not towards mere judicial restraints. No, it points all to the perfection of God the Father. Jesus was not primarily seeking to show what God requires of the Christian in his daily life. It's very true that Jesus has revealed God's ultimate standard and we have to take it to heart. But his primary intent was to say, if you want to be righteous by the law, then you must keep the whole law internally in your heart and mind and externally in your actions. That is, you must be perfect. 
which we know we can't be. So how can we be made perfect? Through Jesus and living the way that Jesus tells us to live. Jesus has demonstrated that we need a righteousness that is apart from the law. Paul said that in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God is apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So what's our current relation to the law as truly interpreted? If we think about Jesus said, no, I'm going to tell you the true interpretation of the law, then what's our relationship to that? Then, well, I think what our relationship is is that we get exposed as guilty of uh, not keeping the law. Uh, We can never make ourselves righteous by just doing good works, which was exactly the view held by the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day. So we can't be modern-day scribes and Pharisees. When it comes to understanding the interpretation and the demands of the law, then we do ourselves a favour when we remember another aspect of Jesus' teaching on the law in focusing on the command to love God and our neighbour. That's when we rightly understand the demands and the details of the law in Matthew chapter 22. And the Apostle Paul wrote very much the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He said, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and from sincere faith. That's my observation, is that we would have pure hearts, good conscience and sincere faith to apply this to the best of our ability. I can't be perfect, but I have to try my best to live by God's standards. I I can't just say, well, I'm covered by grace and mercy, so I'm not even going to try. No, Jesus has taught us in this sermon, this is how I want you to live. So we must constantly try and strive to do that. When we fall short, ask for forgiveness. Remember, there's always a road back. It's repentance and forgiveness. It's saying, God, I'm sorry for the sin. I'm sorry for what I've done wrong. Forgive me of my sin. Allow me to move forward in you. How can I do all this? Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So anytime you say, I can't do that, you're right in the fact that you can't do it without Christ, but you're wrong in the fact that with Christ you actually can. And so many Christians become Christians and still say they can't do all things. That's because you're trying to do it in your own strength. But if you did it in the strength of Jesus, now you can do all things. This is what we're supposed to, supposed to strive towards, is living a life where we can do everything through the power of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Because Jesus did it, Jesus said it, God commands us and he shows us. He's the one that reigns on the just and the unjust. So we should do the same. Heavenly Father, thank you for the goodness of your word. I pray, Lord, that we will live with a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, a belief that we really can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.